Hello, Datagist friends and family, and welcome back. I'm your host, Chad Hagel, picking up with the second episode in our first ever installment of Entrepreneur's Corner. We're here with Ryan Lawrence of Chariots, Inc., on location at his very first retail location for Vintage Chariots in Santa Clarita, California. In our last segment with Ryan, we learned about Ryan's upbringing in the Southern California classic car community, his experiences as a police officer, and how his background led him to create Chariots, Inc. We also talked about marketing, brand building, and retail real estate, among other topics in that first segment. If you missed it, I encourage you to go back an episode so you get the full experience. And I'll remind you, this is our first full video episode of Datages. If you're listening and want to check out the full video, go to www.youtube.com slash at Datages Advice in order to enjoy the full video experience. It's definitely worth it. Today, we're picking up with Ryan talking about capital raising for early stage companies. And Ryan is ready to grill me with some important questions about raising capital for his company. I hope all of you in the Datages friends and family who might be raising funds for your own ventures will find the advice I offer Ryan today very useful. I'd like to ask you about when is the appropriate time to seek additional funding? As a small business owner who's contributed 100% of their own money that I've saved over the years, and you don't want to see your brand flounder, at some point as a creative entity, I do understand that it takes a team of people. Mm -hmm. And it really takes more than just, you can't do everything by yourself. And as much as I'd like to say that I could, other good people need to be involved to build your vision, right? So when it comes to the financial side of things, what's the best way to pitch your brand? Mm -hmm. And who, I think what I find myself most confused about is really understanding what are the resources? Who do I go to? I'm a little lost from a standpoint of, okay, I hear words out there like angel investors or venture capitalist groups. And who do I go to first? And are there venture capitalists that only cater to specific industries? Mm -hmm. And I think the biggest unknown is, yeah, okay, once I get to that stage or once I stand before them with this idea, well, then how do I know how much to ask for? And then just because they say, yes, okay, here's XYZ amount, well, then what do we do with that? So just because you get the money, that's great, but you got to be able to effectively spend the money. All perfect questions for where you're at right now (laughs) in your business. Can you give me a sense for how much initial investment you've put in? Just the retail spaces and the product. I mean, we're going into the quarter million realm. Yeah. Each storefront has probably been built. So that's important because when you go out to investors, I think there are a few key messages you need to deliver to them. One is to demonstrate what you've done so far, your accomplishment as a business and what you're doing. Two is to demonstrate what I was just asking about, skin in the game. You're not asking someone to put in money when you haven't been willing to do the same yourself. Sure. You've put in plenty of money at this point that you should be able to approach people about putting in more money that's equivalent to or probably four or five X what you've put in yourself. Sure. I think that's a comfortable range where no one is going to feel like you're over asking based upon the commitment you've made yourself. 
to the company. So you, you've really done the first two things that I think are important to establish the level of credibility that's necessary to go to your first round of outside investors. And many people would have gone to that outside round of investors much earlier than where you're at right now. So I think you're not at a disadvantage. You're not going to present to investors as somebody who's overreaching. You're actually going to present as somebody who has done a lot more than others have perhaps, have been in business longer, have a more defined track record, have a better defined brand, have a better defined product offering, have a lot more under your belt than a lot of people who are going to be seeking the same type of money you're going to be seeking. So don't sell yourself short and be super confident about where you are right now sure. that you're more than far enough along to seek investment from people. And I think you also have something that's much more tangible and credible than a lot of people who are raising money around things that are in the clouds. Yes. You're not in the clouds. You're here on the ground with yeah. a presence, with sales, with revenue, yeah. with a track record, with your own money invested. So you're in a very good position, I think, to be raising money. You're also, by virtue of the space that you're in, you know, we talked about how your customer base is an affluent customer base that's spending a lot of money in this industry. Your investor base is the same. Your strongest, best, wealthiest, most affluent, most established customers are also probably your best investors. Sure. And you find those people that are passionate about what you're doing, that love what you're doing, where it really speaks to their heart, not only to their mind in terms of what the investment thesis is, you have that audience at your disposal. I think that, you know, we we're asking about stages of investment. I wouldn't go after venture capital right now, purely defined venture capital, a few reasons. One is venture capitalists are sharks and there is blood in the water right now across the world they are cutting the best deals that they've cut in the last 20 years because valuations are down. Mm -hmm. And when valuations are down, that hurts entrepreneurs that are running companies and looking for funding, but it helps venture capitalists because they're getting a steal. Sure. They're getting a great deal. You need to find what I would characterize as friends and family or angel investors that aren't going to beat you up, that aren't going to penalize you just because of what's going on in the world broadly and are going to see through that and see to the strength of the opportunity that you can present. Because the good news is in an environment where finding returns, if you can present something that can credibly provide a business thesis, and especially, like I said, where you've put your own money in to get it past the riskiest part, you're presenting something pretty unique in an environment where a lot of people are very challenged. There are not many people that have a quarter of a million dollars to start a business right now. So the set of investments that are out there for angels and, and early stage investors to be making, it's thin. Mm -hmm. There aren't that many people who can start businesses in today's climate because money is so hard to get. Sure. So I think of the money that's out there, you're well poised to be able to capture some of it. Thank and you. I think that the very next step that's most important is you're talking about your marketing program and communication to your customer base. You have to invest the same amount of effort and energy into positioning yourself to tell the story to investors as you are to tell the story to customers. And those stories overlap. There's 35% of those stories that are exactly the same. And then you take it in a different direction to show business potential. In the episode that I talked about a moment ago, It Takes Credit to Make Money, part one of that episode focuses a lot on the fundamental elements of a business plan. So I'd encourage you and our other Datagist friends and family who are in the same position, go listen to that episode. And then I'm always here for you, and I'm always yeah. here for everyone else in the Datagist friends and family as well. Reconnect. 
let's regroup after you've looked at that, looked at the framework that I set forth about how to compose a business plan and the elements that are important. And I'm always here to help and provide advice to help you execute on making that happen. But I think you're right there. I think yeah. if you invest several hours, 30, 40 hours of your time and the resources around you to help you pull that story together in a compelling way. Sure. I think you're well poised to be able to present it effectively. Thank you. I think we're we're definitely on the same wavelength because I, I didn't get a chance to reveal this to you prior to us chatting, but I had already spent that amount of time and some yeah. putting something together. And you know, I'm definitely going to make an effort to listen again to the the you know your former episode that talks about that. From a business plan perspective, I have a good really good presentation put together, good. an expanded presentation. I, I know from my own personal research, I've read that pitch decks can tend to be anywhere from 10 to 15 slides. Keep it concise for investors to really understand who you are as a business, what you represent, and what you want to do with your brand. There are so many other facets that Chariots Inc. Mm -hmm. can go into that are really promising yeah. that I've put together in this package. That, um, yeah, there's really three elements. There's a pitch deck, which yeah. is very visual and, and sure. consumable. Sure. Then there's an executive summary, yeah. which is more narrative, but still fairly brief, three or four pages max. And then there's a full business plan. Yeah. And it, what it sounds like what's great is you've got the components to build all three. Because as you go down the road with prospective investors, you're going to need all three at sure. different times with different audiences. You'll need those three elements. Sure. And what's your advice on being that the projected steps from here forward are going to be to reach out to people who could be of assistance or people who want to learn about the brand from a business plan standpoint? What guidance and information can you provide so I, I remain protected? I'm assuming just your standard NDA when you go and speak to individuals or groups so that you don't reveal something and leave your tail out there for somebody to take your ideas and walk away with them. Yeah, it's a good point. And there's only so much you can do to protect yourself from a confidentiality perspective. And it's a balancing act because it's kind of like when we were talking a moment ago about marketing efforts, a lot of these same theories and approaches apply to seeking investment. You want to give them a taste for free mm -hmm. and you want to share as much as you need to share to really capture their, their attention and get them excited. And then if there's more detailed information, financials and future business plans, future pitches and concepts and marketing and things that you wouldn't necessarily want out there in the public domain, then it's perfectly acceptable once you've gotten down the road with somebody a bit further to ask them to sign a confidentiality okay. agreement. But I've learned over the years, it can be more of an obstacle to having a really good discussion with somebody to kind of pause and say, wait, I need you to go sign this agreement. Yeah. Depending on who you're talking to, their level of sophistication and how frequently they've invested in companies. Some people are like, oh, sure, no big deal. Sign it, move on. Yep. Other people, when you put a legal document in front of them, they, yeah. I don't know, should I do this? Am I doing something? <laughs> I should. I'm, I'm, am I signing my life away? Yeah. Like, there's always that fear, yeah. and so I, I wouldn't get too hung up on. It. Okay, no, that's great to know because as I've met people, I want to talk about my business. Yeah. I want to talk about my vision and my idea, and sometimes I. I'll check myself and be like, well, wait a minute. Should I have revealed that just now, quite your, yet? You your know? real protection is one, you've got a head start. Yeah. If anyone is going to do what you're doing, you're way ahead of them. It's going to sure. be tough for them to catch up with you. 
two, I, I really think that you're moving at a good pace in a good direction. And it's really much easier for somebody who's interested in the space to participate with you than it is to try to go do it themselves. I appreciate that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Thank you. You know what? It brings me to a couple other questions I had for you. We did talk about a little bit about the, the real estate thing, but what about intellectual property? When I built this company, I did it with the idea that I needed to protect myself first mm-hmm. before I stuck my neck out there yeah. and tried to put this pen to paper and the vision to become a reality. So Chariots, Inc., Vintage Chariots, our actual company logo, and another component to our brand, which we really haven't touched on, is called the Speed Breed. And I see it on your yes, sweater. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm really excited about this element of our branding because I think it speaks to the culture a lot, but it also represents another really important aspect of our brand, which is the elevated platform, which is the premium goods that are beyond what our origins come from, which is the what I would like to call the premium casual wear. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to trademarking your brand or making sure that you have certain things copywritten, how important is that to make sure that those things are in place before you start telling your customer base that you're going to use this name and blah, blah, blah? Yeah. And it's kind of a chicken and the egg thing as well, because one of the ways to demonstrate that you're entitled to a trademark is to show that you're using it and you have to continue to use it in some cases to get through that full trademark process. That process takes a a while. Yes. You don't just snap your fingers and it happens. (laughs) So you're going to face some exposure where you're publicly using the name while you're going through the process. So you can't guarantee yourself sitting here today, right now, I'm going to immediately get a trademark and I'm going to immediately be protected. Yes. So I think that um, some of it also comes down to not just the true legal intellectual property protection, but it's kind of a real estate play. And it's not just about physical real estate, it's about virtual real estate. If you are occupying domain names, if you have Instagram handles, if you have Facebook presence, if you go through all the virtual real estate and you've captured it under those names that you want to use, you're going to make it really hard for anyone else to come into that space and infringe upon the names that you're using. And I think that level of protection is almost more defensive and more meaningful than the legal process of going to get a trademark. So I think you're doing all of that right now, and I think that's important. I will encourage you, though, to be cautious as we're going back before about keeping your message very concise and keeping your brand very clear. I think you're too early in the process to be introducing all of the components. Sure. It's great that you wear them, literally and figuratively. You carry them with you. And it's great that you have those and have a strategy for when and how they can be incorporated and rolled out and what the distinction is between each one of them. Yeah, That's awesome to have that roadmap for the future. Now you have other destinations you can go and where you can branch off. But I wouldn't try to introduce those so quickly and so early on where you're at today because you could lead to the confusion that we were talking about before with your customer base. Sure. Yeah, I appreciate that very much because having been my own worst critic, I'm always concerned about how people are going to perceive mm-hmm. what's in front of them, yeah. right? So if there are customers, and we've had plenty of repeat customers, and we're so proud of the customer base that we've built, that you're absolutely right. I don't yeah. want to start introducing things that right. will start confusing their interpretation of who we are and what we represent. Yeah, And somewhat ironically, you could say back to your question about intellectual property, it's the brands that you're not using right now that you want to use in the future and preserve 
that you may need to be more assertive about protecting from an intellectual property perspective because you're not occupying that real estate that I talked about. Even if you have a domain name, you're not broadcasting it out there, creating ownership and creating a presence in the marketplace. Sure. To where somebody could even inadvertently, maybe it's a horse racing company sure. that starts using the term speed breed. Mm -hmm. And by the time you get around to using it, it's already in people's minds for something else. Correct. So that may be someplace you want to focus your attention. If you are going to focus anywhere sure. from an actual property perspective is making sure you're protecting the things for the future that you're not actively using already. That's good to know. Thank you. Thank you. One of the really important facets of my business is money, right? So any business from yeah. a standpoint of keeping costs down yeah. on my inventory, what strategies do you have, especially from, I mean, I don't, I don't know if you have something specifically for the apparel industry, sure. but what pointers would you have on keeping costs down so that we can survive yeah. fluctuations in revenue from month to month? And I don't know if there's something general or more specific that you would have to kind of add to what's sure. a good practice, no, I it's guess. A, it's, a, it's a good question. And uh, supply chain is one of the most difficult things in the world today. Luckily, you're not using microprocessors. If you have, if you had chipsets <laughs> built into your apparel, you'd be in, in real trouble. Yeah. <laughs> but anything you're trying to do is really constrained by supply chain. Supply chain and labor are probably the two biggest challenges we're facing in our in our economy right now. Which is really what's driving all of the other factors like inflation and and all, all of those things within your domain. I think you have to be very cautious about inventory. Inventory can be a killer. You have to have product. But if you start amassing inventory, you can really be in trouble. And, you know, we were talking earlier about how visual your brand is and about these amazing designs you're coming up with. I love them all, but I'm sure that when you look across a customer base, you're already seeing some things you didn't anticipate exploding the way they did. They're just flying off the shelves and others that maybe you really like the design, but for some reason, people just aren't buying it. It's very unpredictable and you're never going to know for certain that something's going to be a guaranteed winner. And so I think you have to be very careful uh, about um, how much you're ordering initially, what your inventory is, making sure you're bringing in enough that it, it is selling reasonably quickly, and then work out with your suppliers a mechanism where you can reorder. And I'm hopefully, because you're dealing with the same suppliers on the shirts and the same suppliers on the hats... You're starting to build enough credibility and enough reordering with them. You can go back and start to negotiate and maybe say, I'm going to place an order for a thousand units of this thing from you, but I need to try out two or three different designs before I know which is the right thousand to order. But I don't want you to charge me the higher rate for the lower quantity order on the front because I'm going to guarantee you that one of these I'm going to place a big order for on the back end. It, but I want the, the large volume pricing discount, sure. even on this first order I'm making with you for the, the test market. And I'm, I'm hopeful that the relationships you're building with your suppliers are such that they recognize the value to helping you get to more scale and that you've ordered enough from them so far that they'd be willing to play some of those games with you. I think that is honestly one of our strongest points so yeah. far for the business is that we truly try to treat everybody, when possible, like family, right? Mm -hmm. So these suppliers that we've been working with, we have real personal relationships with them. That's great. So in that 
although I haven't used the strategy that you just suggested, mm-hmm. it's great. And I know that they would be willing to accommodate yeah. because as I've learned the hard way yeah. a couple times over when, when dealing with like a single design, mm-hmm. If I know in advance that that design is going to be replicated on women's clothing, mm-hmm. children's clothing, and adult unisex clothing, well, don't order that stuff separately because, especially in the screen printing world, mm-hmm. you're getting charged on quantity. So yeah. bundle the order together yep. and your savings is, it can be astronomical. I mean, Absolutely. even in relatively short quantities, yeah. you could be dealing with uh, 50% you know, cost change um you know and if you develop some real winners that become like your staples where it's like this is the defining piece of gear that everyone wants you might then look to change your production methods to where instead of doing a custom like silkscreen approach and i don't know the technicalities of it so i might use the wrong language but instead of doing it here locally with your printer maybe your three or four or five top winners you then go to a more mass production approach sure. and you go overseas or even domestic. A lot of things are being onshored right now and there are ways to produce things uh, more cheaply and in larger volumes here in the U.S. than there have been in the past. Maybe you create an alternative method of production for those top few things. Yeah. And then what that also allows you to do is if you're working with a mass production environment, uh, there are a lot more companies that are getting to a just-in-time uh, supply method uh, and are willing to produce to order. Uh, and particularly when you t- go back, going back to what you were saying about how successful your business is growing in omnichannel, it's a real opportunity of omnichannel. You look at certain companies, an example in the apparel world is Untucket. Untucket mm-hmm. is an online retailer, uh, but they have stores. What do they do in their stores? People can come in, they can touch, they can feel, they can see, they can try on. But there's very limited quantity of that apparel in the store. Yes. And nine times out of 10, their customer is not going to walk out of the store with that item. They're going to have a tablet right there in the store. So you're not counting on them to leave and go buy online at home. They're buying online in the store. Sure. So it's truly omni-channel because you're in the store and you're online at the exact same time. Yeah. And they're placing the order there. And they're probably getting a discount for placing the order there versus placing the order and counting on them to go home to place the order. And then it's being shipped to them and it's being produced somewhere. You have zero inventory in that sales cycle because you're producing it for them just in time when they've placed the order to get it. I will second that fear of large inventory being held over because when I started my first retail location, the one that we're seated at, my issue was, well, wait a minute. Now that we're going full retail, like I don't want a bunch of inventory just sitting around. Yeah. I don't, I'm not going to order X amount yeah. not knowing how well it's going to be received. Yeah. And so you know, as we've grown to a second store, that exponentially compounds that issue. the problem. Man. Because now I'm splitting inventory between two relatively close locations. Yeah. But if one location is out of a product versus the other... You know, I got to ship from one store to the next or transfer inventory. So those issues we didn't anticipate having. I would love to basically have a made-to-order system where... And even if it's not made-to-order, that problem you just raised about balancing between the two stores, maybe you have a warehouse somewhere that's really cheap space and you can drop ship it to them from the warehouse and maybe they're paying two bucks 
to have the convenience of having it delivered to their home to help offset your shipping cost. And I think you would have enough savings by not having to stock your inventory doubly in both locations that you're, you're able to overcome that. And I think people's shopping expectations are changing now to where they're okay with that sort of thing. Sure. They don't have to walk out with the shirt in the bag. Yeah. They're perfectly happy to get it at home in two days. Yeah, I agree with you on that. And one other question that I just thought of about this whole transfer of inventory is that we've learned quickly that our first location, you know, it doesn't accommodate all of the stuff that we're now offering. So one of the things that I think is important to convey to our customers when they come in got more. is, hey, we have more available. Check and us out on the web. Don't, don't, don't try to tell, show. Yes. Have a kiosk in your store, a couple of over by the checkout location or over in your corner where you have a really cool seating area. Yeah. Make that the, the virtual studio where people can virtual chariots yeah. They can sit down in front of a computer screen, may, make it a touch screen that they can play with. And maybe you have some other really cool things on there that videos and pictures and things that they can look at that draw them to that corner of the store that's not being used for anything else right now to engage them. But it's all driving back to yeah. sales, 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 sales. Drive everyone back to when they're watching a video of you know one of your vehicles, have some of your inventory scrolling through at the bottom corner of the screen. Oh, I really like that. And yep. Maybe it's related to the video they're watching in some way <laughs> yep. and give them points of engagement while they're in the store to show your full inventory. And the example I have of this, I've done a lot of business with Staples. People think Staples is just an office supply store. You go in and I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but I have the order of magnitude, right? Say there are 10,000 products in a Staples store. How many products do you think Staples actually sells as a company? I'd be willing to bet 10 times that amount. 100 times that amount. Yeah. You can go to Staples and buy veterinary supplies. Really? No matter what business you're in, staples.com, their web presence, will provide you whatever you need for your business. They can't stock all that stuff in the store. The store is just a small sampling of what they have to offer. Yeah, I think that definitely alleviates some of my initial concern because I have this like internal need to showcase everything that we offer you want to at see each store. The product. Yes, and, and so this understanding that not every product that we offer needs to be present in the store. I can understand the insecurity around that as, oh, a, yeah. as a retailer, as a, as a storefront operator. <laughs> but as I said, I think people's perspectives are changing. And what you want to avoid is, I call it the Super Bowl phenomenon. Think about this. This is probably the worst example of this problem. Every year, the Super Bowl is played. And every year, as soon as the game is over, you can get t-shirts for the winner. Yes. What about all the t-shirts for the loser? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They produce just as many t-shirts and hats and sweatshirts and everything for the team that lost that no one will ever see. I always say that there's probably some village in Guatemala somewhere yep. that thinks that the Buffalo Bills are the greatest Super Bowl team of all time. <laughs> well, to them, they are. Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> so yeah. don't create all that disposable inventory that you end up just throwing away. Assets can become liabilities in a hurry. Of course. If, if they're not properly handled. One, one question this brings me to that I think is important, especially with this idea that we are going to continue retail. And this store that we're in currently is 
smaller from a capacity standpoint for the apparel. Do you have suggestions on how often new products should be introduced so that your customer base in a given area understands that you're staying fresh, that you have new stuff to offer, so that inventory isn't lingering from a prior season, even if it is excess inventory? And what do you suggest we do about excess inventory when seasons have passed? Because I do know that it's common place for to do like sample sales and stuff like that i think a lot of it comes back to how what your frequency of visits are for your customer how often is the same customer going to come into the store and if you can track that i think it'll help you answer that question and then in terms of your inventory that's left over we talked a bit before about the notion of doing event marketing and going to events and things like that having some giveaways but I don't believe in giving something away for free. There should be nothing for free. Come up with a strategy that's meaningful to you when you're out in those events and and out in the community. Is it building an email list? Is it getting them to check in in your social media online presence? What is an action that you can ask them for that you can ascribe value to so they don't feel like you're just giving them something away for free? Because when something is free, it has no value. You never want to communicate to your customer base that your inventory has no value. Correct. And I very much appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's great. Um, Definitely could think of 10 times over what we could do. Absolutely. There's great creative ideas out there. There's so many different marketing angles these days. Sure. Great. No, I very much appreciate that. Thank you so much. Uh, One of the... Topics I wanted to touch on, Chad, was about scalability for the brand. Um, You know, obviously growth is important. Financials are important. And receiving monies from outside parties at at some point in the near future is going to be extremely important. But I have built this brand based on the quality that we represent. And so I do have concerns about as we continue to grow in positive directions at what point will concerns come in about cheapening the brand and being overexposed in areas that may detract from who we are and what we're doing in the brand image franchising let's call it or licensing our brand to be all across the country yeah how does that play into you know any fear about expanding either too quickly or not you know, in an effective way, I guess. Yeah, yeah. No, those are very good questions. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs face those same questions when they're getting to the growth point where your business is right now and trying to evaluate different pathways for growth and how, what is the cleanest and clearest path and with the greatest certainty that you're going to be able to grow the brand. The most fundamental advice I could give is grow cautiously. And what I mean by that is, don't try to grow so quickly that you dilute the brand. As you said, preserving the integrity of the brand is critical in a retail business. And I think that, again, coming back to what is so strong about your brand, the story behind the brand, which you can tell more effectively than anybody, the identity behind the brand, you, Ryan Lawrence, if you extend that too far and too many degrees of separation from yourself, 
it loses its authenticity and it gets diluted down sure. to where it's not really worth anything anymore. And so I think the nature of your brand is one that is even more important to keep close and to not let get disseminated and distributed out there. The good news is that I think in today's world, there are a lot of ways to do that and still scale. And what I would focus on, and this comes back also to the concept of investment and what you can promise to investors. For me, when I invest in a business, I started out early, early in my career, 1998, when I got out of Stanford in the dot-com sector, and I learned to be allergic to two things. One is I'm allergic to technology. I, I try to avoid being dependent upon technology as a basis for a business, except where there's a clear technological advantage to using the technology. Two is I learned to be afraid of a business model that says something like, oh, we've just got to grow to be this big. And once we get this big, we're going to be really profitable. Mm -hmm. I look at incremental businesses and I favor incremental businesses. And my personal philosophy is incremental businesses are the best businesses. Get profitable, then get big. Focus on profitability at a small level and then scale the profitability. Don't scale the business and try to grow into profit. Sure. It's, I think it's an unhealthy illusion that you're going to be able to chase this golden ring that's out there of profitability if you can't make a profit along the way. Yeah. And that's important for you as the entrepreneur who needs to put money back in your own pocket. And it's equally important for your early investors that you're going to bring in because if you want to pitch your business to me, it's going to resonate a lot better with me if you say, I only need your money and these other bits of money that I've got lined up in this initial investment, and we're all going to make a profit together versus telling me, I need your money, and then I'm going to grow the business, and then we're going to get more money, and we're going to grow the business further, and then it's going to be profitable. Because yeah. by that time, you've diluted me as an investor by bringing in other investment sure. to where I'm never really going to see a meaningful return. I'd rather make a little bit of money from your success as you go as an investor than to be promised some major amazing upside in the future that is so far down the road and so intangible that it's meaningless to me. I, I agree. I think that concept I'm very adverse to yeah. the, you know, the the negative version that you yeah, provided, yeah. which for me, I, I hold too much importance with the quality of the brand and how we've put together our product. Yeah. And I know the purpose of this conversation is not to talk numbers, sure. but we have terrific margins. And no, like, let's talk numbers. Help us understand where you're at right now. Yeah. I mean, uh, well, from like a revenue standpoint or just for like margins yeah, of the talk, product? Talk about your margins, where you're at, yeah. how things are going. I mean, so, you know, I came from the business world before law enforcement. So mm -hmm. I'd like to say that I still retained a little bit of that knowledge, but yeah. uh, it's been a long time now. But most of my products are hovering at a uh, as a, at a seventy percent margin. That's excellent. Um, that is great. And some fluctuate close to eighty. Mm -hmm. I would say some are in the sixty range. But yeah. I try to keep most of my products at that seventy yeah. percent mark. Yeah. And what's really been nice from a translation standpoint and a customer standpoint is that we are on the upper end of what I would call premium casual wear yeah. for our our base portion of our brand. Yeah. 
And when you look at some other well-established brands that are out there in that same realm, that the surf skate culture or anything that can translate, our price They're points, down, yeah. yeah, the price points for us are generally higher. Absolutely, but we get such praise for the quality of our pieces yeah. and the designs that people are willing to spend, which which I appreciate most, of course, their hard-earned money on on this concept. Yeah, you captured it right there. I mean, it comes full circle, the beginning of our conversation, which is you're capitalizing upon a business model that has been developed before and a brand model that's been developed before in skate, in surf, but you're applying it to a marketplace, which is the automotive marketplace, where the capacity for dollars is so much higher. There's so much more money to be spent among your target audience than there is in that surf and skate culture. And look how well they've done. Oh. You have the ability to do even better. Yeah. But what I would encourage you to do is what you're already doing. Focus on those margins, maintain those margins, preserve those margins, and then don't squander those margins by spending all of that margin you were able to capture. That's your competitive advantage versus every other business in this sector that you're looking at. Don't squander that margin by spending it on things that aren't essential to continuing to sell those high margin items to your customer base. And could you provide just for some clarity, what what would be an example of squandering it in a way that would be not fruitful? It comes back to, uh, you know, don't try to grow too quickly. Of course. Um, Reinvest only where you can see a direct connect the dots line from that reinvestment to more sales of those high margin products. You've already got the golden egg, which is that high margin product that people are demonstrating that they want and that they'll pay for. Don't focus on trying to go so big and sell so much of what you have to sell that you're investing in mass marketing platforms and major advertising spins and more real estate and a bunch more locations and stuff. Just focus on driving more of the sales that you've got and preserving the margins you have. Don't spend all your margins by trying to grow so quickly sure. that you can't capture what you've created. Thank you. That makes a lot of sense. I, uh, I definitely am all about the incremental changes. So yeah. I think that falls in line with that. For sure. And, you know, there's obviously as an entrepreneur, as a business owner, and being as small as we still relatively are, yeah. like the scary part about growth is always going to be like, well, wait a minute, did we move too fast? So I can I can really associate with that because I'd rather see incremental change and reinvest in a in a smart, functional way. The majority of mistakes in business and in life come from action, not inaction. Don't stagnate. Don't do nothing. Yeah. But recognize that you have greater potential for making a mistake by taking actions that are contrary to what you're already doing. And stick with what works. Continue to do it. Stay the course and and do what's working for you and take advantage of the value that you're creating by doing that. Thank you. I will take that to heart. For sure. (laughs) We'll circle back. Yeah. Uh, One of the topics I wanted to chat about was customer retention, brand loyalty, and of course, quality control of our products. But, you know, one of the things that pleases me so much about our customer base is how receptive they've been to what we have to offer and how Mm -hmm. willing they are to come back and spend more money. Great traits. 
what suggestions would you have for creating a more fun, interactive opportunity for the client Mm -hmm. to engage in our brand further Mm -hmm. beyond just like, hey, I came back to the mall today and I'm going to go back to your store? How do we retain customers outside of the physical space and allow them to engage further from like maybe a a rewards program or what seems to work in that space that could help us even further? Yeah. And I think that's again, where you, your brand, your company have so much to work with so much more than most other brands would ever be able to tap into because you've got such rich visual content. I know you're an amazing photographer. You've shot pictures of my vehicle, the 76 (laughs) Bronco. You've uh, just create beautiful art. And I think that finding ways to engage with people that are visual, that are interactive, and again, leveraging what we've been talking about, about omni-channel, you have so many unique opportunities to create a web presence that enhances what you've got going on in the stores and whether that's conventional, you know, using social media and Instagram and getting content out there that people want to consume and interacting with them that way. Or if it's, as we talked about creating opportunities to bring the virtual into the store and creating something experiential within your retail space that then encourages them to come back to the online space because they've touched it, felt it, experienced it in the store. I think there are some really unique opportunities there. And then you talk, we talked before about event marketing as well. Bring those same virtual experiences into your event space. And then you have so many amazing assets that you can engage with people. You know, I can imagine you running a campaign where it's like, We're going to do a marketing campaign. And if you do these five things, you know, follow us on Facebook, like us, do this, do this, do this, come into the store, make a single purchase. You're entered into raffle to have an opportunity to come out to Huntington Beach with us and go drive three of our classic vehicles Mm -hmm. in in an afternoon. We'll take you around a a track or around some historic site or, or something really cool, you know, come out for our next video shoot when we're going to shoot one of our our vehicles on the road. I think you have a lot of things that people really want to be a part of and really want to touch and feel and experience. And if you can wrap that into uh, a virtual experience, an online experience, and ultimately the in-store experience, you have an amazing, beautiful, tangible, meaningful platform to to bring people in for all that. Thank you. I I think that does... That really ties into what we have been hearing from our customers. Yeah. Like, because the space is so experiential from yeah. a visual standpoint, like uh, at our other store in Topanga, uh, at the Topanga Mall, we commonly get questions like, hey, are you guys like a car club? And or are you guys going to be hosting your own events? So we're already getting yeah. the requests from our customers. Yeah. And I think and that you can would- either do those things yourself or maybe even better partner with other groups that are out there. Yes. Um, and yes. even, you know, in an online capacity, you and I talked before about relating your sales to the sales of vehicles and you've got platforms that become super popular, like bring a trailer yeah. that are related to this group of people and where their transactions already happening. If someone buys a classic vehicle, maybe they want a shirt to go along with it. That yeah. they can wear to showcase that they are a classic <laughs> car guy. Yeah, you know those kinds of opportunities for partnerships exists in the in the virtual landscape and the event landscape, 
And then as we talked about, coming back here in the mall setting in your physical landscape. Agreed. One other thing that's been on my mind about the business from a standpoint of operations is, yes, we're still small, but we've been growing pretty exponentially. And at what point should I feel comfortable giving some of the duties to other people? And how do I go about doing that? Having my staff in my stores from a retail perspective is one thing, but I've built this company literally from the bottom up. I've built the website from scratch. I don't even know if the friend and family from the Datages podcast would even know this because we didn't really discuss it, but every single piece of apparel in my platform is designed and created by me. There is not another person. Mm -hmm. I, I create every piece. I, own, I also work the stores, of course, but I'm also doing all the back end stuff from the inventory ordering to web platform stuff with the website, social media, taking pictures and posting pictures and taking posts and doing all this stuff. So there is a point where it becomes overwhelming yeah. and I want to maintain the creativity that I thrive in, but I do need help from time to time sure. doing this you know, some of the, let's call it ancillary functions. Yeah. So I'm going to give you kind of both sides of that equation. One is, as I said before, your company is so much about you that you can't ever distance yourself from that point of contact with your customer. Of course. So I would never make a decision that takes yourself out of that, out of that sales cycle and out of that communication cycle and that marketing cycle with your customer. On the flip side, delegate or die. If you can't delegate, you can't grow and you can't enjoy what you're doing in your business and you're going to have to start turning some of your attention to assigning responsibilities to others and entrusting them with those things so it's really about being selective about which are the functions that somebody else can do that don't diminish your engagement in the areas that are so important to you and so important to your for your participation while finding areas that people people can do those other things but those are good topics that you know we're going to be covering more on on datages, mm-hmm. and you know those are, are things that I spend a lot of time on because I'm an operations guy, and sure. my whole business is based upon building a system and building a process that can be replicable. You know, in, in fact, we have uh, uh, an episode that is is being produced uh, right now uh, and released very soon that's focused on managing return on time and being efficient, and and so. Some of those topics are already being covered, but they're certainly things we can talk about more in the future as well Great. as the business grows. Awesome. Look forward to that. Yeah. And I think on that note, um, you know, I think this experience has been great. I couldn't have asked for a better opportunity <laughs> for the first episode of, Thank you. Uh, of Entrepreneur's Corner. Here, we, This is a great corner to be in <laughs> for Entrepreneur's Corner. Uh, is a great way to start out. And, you know, I, I think it's important, as we were just talking about, we really want to maintain connectivity with you. Thank you. With Chariots, uh, with the growth of your business. Thank Let you, our Datages friends and family follow along with how you take what we've talked about here today and implement it going forward. Hopefully with great success. I hope that what I've shared is something that helps create value for you and for your business. And we want to be here. We want to follow you along. We're really looking forward to that and think it could be really exciting. Thank you. I, I really, truly appreciate the opportunity. And I really look forward to circling back 
however much time it'll be to see where we've gone. I'm just very excited about the opportunities that we know already exist that are kind of pending here in the next few months. And I'm really excited to see where the brand goes and obviously the customers and their reception to what we're going to do. So it's just really been a delight. I'm so thankful that you chose me as this kind of first and, and how fitting too, because it's your first visual podcast. Yeah. And I couldn't think of a better visual store or space to be in to kind of represent this new stage for not only your business and the podcast for me and my exposure. So thank you very much. Appreciate that. Likewise. And, and thank you for, for coming on and being a part of all this and sharing Vintage Chariots and Chariots Inc. with uh, the Dadages friends and family. It really means a lot. And uh, one of the other legacies <laughs> that we try to preserve is the bad dad joke. So before we go, you know, Ryan, I'm, I'd like to give you your chance to share with uh, the Dadages friends and family your best zinger and a bad dad joke. <laughs> okay. Have you heard about the guys that are stealing the wheels off of police cars? No, I haven't. The police apparently are working tirelessly to find them. Tirelessly. I get it. It's a cop <laughs> joke and a car joke. Yes. Perfect. I love it. You're welcome. Well, Ryan, again, thanks for being a part of this. Thanks for letting us come in and welcoming us into Vintage Chariots. This has been awesome. Thank you. I uh, really enjoyed being here. And as we always say to our audience, remember, dad may not always know what he's talking about, but he sure can sound like he does. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Dadages. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to visit datages.com and subscribe to the Datages podcast to get notified for future episodes. You can rate or review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Why? Because I'm your father and I said so. Just a little respect is all I ask for. I put a roof over your head and food on the table and what do you do? No, tell me exactly what do you do because I'm doing everything. I'm paying for everything. No, get back here. Get back here right now.